There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 135, Triumphal Procession. Last time, we followed Nicephorus' focus to Crete, where he finally brought an end to the Arab Emirate. He then returned to the capital to celebrate a triumph and then headed back to the Eastern Front. We now need to backtrack slightly and return to Constantine Porfiroyenitos' deathbed in late 959. The purple-born emperor, who owed everything he had to his place as the legitimate Macedonian heir, had been successful at replenishing the line. His own purple-born boy Romanus had in turn conceived a legitimate male heir in baby Basil. Another boy was even then growing in Theophano's belly as Constantine passed away. Romanus II therefore became emperor the next day in the least controversial succession since Theophilus inherited the throne way back in 829. By all accounts, the 21-year-old Romanus was easygoing and fun-loving. He was tall and thin like his father, with sandy-coloured hair. And like many younger men, he preferred hunting and racing over governing. But he was no fool, and followed his father's advice in delegating matters of state to a trusted adviser. The man who Constantine recommended was no longer Basil Lecapinos, but rather Joseph Bringus. As I've hinted before, Basil had been accused of enriching himself and had agitated to lead the expedition to Crete. As well as he and Constantine got on, the dying emperor clearly felt that Bringus, a more sober figure, would make a better adviser to his son. Young Romanus concurred and allowed Bringus to take charge of the Cretan expedition, which was already being prepared when his father died. You may also recall that the year before the emperor's death, the Magyars had raided Thrace. Leo Phocas was dispatched to deal with them. Perhaps in response to that invasion, or maybe it was already in the works, Romanus ordered a division of the role of domestic of the Scoli. From now on, he wanted a domestic of the East and a domestic of the West. As I mentioned during the interview with Eric McGear, 
At some point in the past few decades, tagmatic units had begun to be posted to the Eastern Front, presumably in connection with John Corcuas's annual campaigns. The division of commands probably flowed from this. Now, the Empire's elite troops, whether stationed at the capital or near the mountains, would have their commander living with them. Naturally, Nicephorus was reappointed domestic of the East, and his brother Leo was made commander of the West. Romanus next crowned his baby boy Basil emperor, and issued gifts and prizes to the elites to make sure the new regime got off to a favourable start. He then returned to his social life, leaving Nicephorus to sail to Crete. Over in Aleppo, Sefadola was struggling, both with a neurological condition that was occasionally debilitating, and with the fact that his border defences had been shredded by the Romans over the past couple of years. However, when he heard that the Byzantines were again distracted by the Cretan menace, he demanded that his army raid Anatolia. The sword of the dynasty remained a tireless and brave warrior. A decade earlier, he'd been disappointed to discover that the borders were still defended during Constantine's first attempt to retake Crete. This time, Nicephorus had taken all the best troops with him, and the Arabs were delighted to march through the borderlands, facing no opposition. Saif split his forces in two. He took the main body into Charcianum and plundered the countryside with gusto. Meanwhile, another detachment headed to Melitene to have yet another crack at destabilizing the Roman presence there. Saif's combined army was large, allegedly 30,000 strong. And as they took their time to gather booty and slaves, distress calls reached the capital. The one weapon at the Emperor's disposal was Leo Focus. The new domestic of the West was available and raced across Anatolia to get ahead of the Arabs. Linking up with what few defenders the borderlands could spare, Leo found himself in the same spot he'd stood in a decade earlier. As you know, in 950, Leo performed a textbook ambush on Saif's army in a mountain pass. The result was a devastating casualty list for the Arabs and a place in the pages of on skirmishing for Leo's tactics. The situation now was similar, except that Leo had far fewer men than he'd had before. He led them into the mountains and kept watch on the enemy. Focus decided that he'd set up his men in the same pass which Saif had used to enter Anatolia. The Romans controlled the local fort, which Leo could use as a base, and the sides of this pass were steep and densely wooded, so his men could remain concealed. If Saif used another pass, then Leo would let him go. There was no point in risking his small force against the invaders. To his surprise, though, the emir led his men straight back to the same spot. 
Roman sources portray Saif as cocky and playful as he led his men home. They describe him as riding up and down the line, impressing his men with tricks, tossing his spear high into the air, then steadying his horse under it and catching it with a flourish. It might sound like propaganda, with Saif hubristically marching toward a trap. But a poem by one of Saif's followers seems to confirm the high spirits he was in. Probably Saif was trying to boost morale and show off to his men, so that when the inevitable Byzantine counterattack came in future years, they would stand more boldly by his side. For many of them, though, that day would never come. Riding with Saif were men from Tarsus who knew Byzantine border warfare better than most. They told the emir that riding back the way they'd come was dangerous and that the Romans had a presence in the area. Their detachment broke off, took another pass, and made it home safely. Saif ignored them and pushed forward. As with a decade earlier, the emir's scouts found no evidence of Leo's presence, and the whole column began to thin out as men were crowded together in the narrow defile. The sound of trumpets and war cries from above prompted a complete loss of discipline. Leo's men were hugely outnumbered, but their sudden appearance, pushing tree trunks and rocks down on the enemy, caused utter panic. It was 9.50 all over again, but on a more dramatic scale. Hamdanid soldiers stumbled and tumbled to untimely deaths on the rocks. Others got Byzantine swords in the back. I stressed a couple of episodes ago the complex emotions of a soldier on campaign and how the potential for life-changing riches could destroy the discipline of an army. The text on skirmishing understands this dynamic perfectly. The author points out that soldiers who've already made their fortune will now be desperate to keep hold of it. They are on their way home, thoughts of a bright future or a joyful family reunion already dancing in their minds. A well-timed ambush will lead to the same collapse of discipline as seen during the looting of an enemy camp. Men are now thinking only of themselves, utterly desperate to escape with their lives and what few coins or trophies they were carrying on their person. One source claims that Seifa Dola only escaped through his understanding of this dynamic. Apparently the emir emptied his hefty purse onto the rocks and made his escape as Roman soldiers scrabbled around trying to retrieve them. This was another crippling blow for Saif. All his prisoners and wagons of loot were abandoned in the mountains, as was his personal baggage. Many Arab prisoners were taken and sold into slavery, and it must have been the psychological blow that was worst of all. Despite the absence of most of the enemy army, the Arabs had still been dealt a horrible defeat. Leo Focus returned to the capital and celebrated a well-earned triumph, though it was swiftly overshadowed the next year by the return of big brother Nicephorus 
with a far more glamorous offering. As I mentioned last week, 960 was a tough winter, with parts of the empire suffering from famine and the government struggling to make sure that both the capital and the army in Crete were fed. During this time, a few senior men around the palace began to discuss a coup. But as often happens with secure regimes, the plot was betrayed and the perpetrators mildly punished. Nicephorus duly returned, celebrated a triumph, and returned to the east. You might think that after the gruelling siege of Chandax that the domestic might want some downtime. But that wasn't how Nicephorus functioned. After hearing about the damage his brother had done, he saw an opportunity to land some serious blows on safe while he was down. He gathered an army that autumn, put them through their paces, and then marched into Cilicia in December 961. The emir of Tarsus was completely surprised by this winter attack, and the Romans outnumbered his forces considerably. Initial resistance was quickly overcome, and Nicephorus closed in on the city of Anazabus, about halfway between Sisium and Mopsuestia on the map. Early in the new year, the citizens surrendered, and it seems that despite this, their city was still sacked, though Nicephorus was able to control his men better this time. The remainder of the population were allowed to leave peacefully, parts of the walls were demolished, and the army moved on. Apparently, the emir of Tarsus tried to negotiate for peace, offering to cut ties with Seifadola, but Nicephorus wasn't interested. His men began ravaging the countryside along the border with Syria, apparently trying to make it hard for Hamdanid reinforcements to make it into Cilicia. The emir of Tarsus eventually sent his army out against the Romans, but his much smaller force was easily broken as the cataphracts did their job and the pursuing cavalry hacked the Tarsiots down as they fled home. The unfortunate commander apparently climbed to the top of a high tower and jumped off it in shame. As winter began to bite, Nicephorus marched his army home. Having devastated the war-making capacity of Cilicia, he gave his men the summer to rest, but told them to return to Caesarea in the autumn. Caesarea in Cappadocia had once been a major city. It was now a smaller settlement, but was growing in the absence of enemy raids, and it had large flat plains outside, which made for an ideal mustering ground and was conveniently located near the Focus family base. After gathering again, and going through their now customary period of training, they set off again in the autumn. This time, Nicephorus was marching for Aleppo itself. This is where all that discipline, which the preceptor laid down, was most vital. This was going to be a long march. At this point, Saif himself was sending out peace feelers, but Nicephorus took this as a sign of weakness. 
his army cruised through the Cilician Gates and headed straight into Syria. In November, they reached Hieropolis, or Manbij, as the Arabs called it, and they sacked it. By December, they were closing in on Aleppo itself. The domestic divided his army in two. He took one arm, and John Zimiskis took the other. John drove off an attack by Saif's chief general, while the emir himself gathered what troops he could to defend the city. He was no match for Nicephorus, though, who routed him outside the walls of his own capital. Zimiskis now arrived and pursued Saif's troops east towards the Euphrates River. This left the path clear for Phocus to invest their capital. Inside the city there was serious civil strife. Saif had abandoned them, and many were now openly questioning his rule. There was only one unit of professional soldiers in the city, and so members of the public had to man the walls. The emir had spent a lot of money upgrading his border defences, and had neglected the circuit walls of Aleppo, which were not in pristine condition. Between this and the bickering civilians on guard duty, it took Nicephorus's troops only three days to spot a weak point. They launched an attack and immediately gained access to the city. It was Christmas Eve 962 when the Romans entered Aleppo and sacked it. The Dalamite garrison, the professionals, retreated to the well-fortified citadel. I've put up pictures on the website and social media where you can see it. It's an impressive sight in the middle of the city, with steep banks on all sides. Nicephorus's men left it alone and busied themselves with looting the rest of the streets. The domestic stayed for a week before withdrawing. His wagons were fit to bursting with loot, and a long column of prisoners traipsed after him. According to Arab sources, nearly 10,000 of the city's young men and women headed off into Roman servitude. Nicephorus was again triumphant. When he was appointed senior general, his brief was to undermine Saif's power base to prevent him from threatening Melitine. He had succeeded beyond expectations. It seemed unlikely that any raids would be coming to Romania for the foreseeable future. Cilicia and Aleppo had been ravaged, and with the destruction of Samosata and Adata a few years earlier, there was very little to stop the Romans from returning in force whenever they pleased. The Byzantines essentially ruled the whole sweep of the Taurus Mountains now. The wealthy cities of Syria and Mesopotamia stared at the horizon and shuddered. Aleppo was, in the words of Antony Caldellis, the spear tip of jihad, and Saif was known throughout the former caliphate as a hero. News of the sacking was a shock to everyone, and the emir's reputation would never recover. Though he would maintain control of the emirate, he would face internal revolts for the next five years, further weakening what strength he had left. The sword of the dynasty moved to Martyropolis, which became the new capital of his realm. Aleppo was no longer secure, and seemed like something of a ghost town for the next few years. 
The wider Muslim world was stirred by these tales, and volunteers for holy war came forward. But it was all too late. In 964, a group of 5,000 soldiers from Khorasan made the long trek to Syria. The Romans were again then on the march, and they were keen to meet them in battle, but there just wasn't enough food to feed them during the campaign, and they had to disperse. Two years later, an even greater force made the trek through Iran, determined to visit the house of war. But when they reached the city of Rey, not far from modern Tehran, they began negotiations with their Bayid or Buyid rulers. They wanted cash and supplies to help get them to the frontier, but the discussions turned sour, and in a foreshadowing of the Crusades, the jihadis sacked the city. Saif was on his own, and at this point had only one hope, that a crisis within Romania would divert the energies of the Christians inward. Much to everyone's surprise, news of this nature came quickly on the heels of the sack of Aleppo. Nicephorus arrived back at Caesarea, dragging slaves and booty with him, and was greeted by messengers with tragic news. The emperor, Romanus II, was dead. Yes, at the age of just 24, the emperor had fallen suddenly ill and passed away. The stories we have to explain this are all hindsight moralizing. The impious young man was hunting during Lent, which is forbidden, led astray by his party buddies. Probably, though, it was just natural causes that the doctors of the day didn't understand. His reign had seen nothing but spectacular military success that he had little to do with. The one thing of note we know he did achieve was to force his five sisters into convents, presumably to prevent them from marrying wealthy men who might have claims on the throne. That decision meant that the empire was back in the same situation it had been in when we began this century of narrative in 912 AD. The Empress Theophano had a boy emperor to look after and a regency council to form. In one sense, she was better off than Zoe had been 50 years earlier, because there was no question over her position or her son's legitimacy. But in another sense, things were far more dangerous. Back then, the army was somewhat divided, and their commanders were unpopular at the capital. Now, the military were entirely united behind one family who were extremely popular and clearly blessed by God. Theophano turned to Joseph Bringus, who was tasked with managing the situation. The empress herself was somewhat preoccupied, as two days before her husband's death, she'd given birth to her third child, a daughter named Anna. Bringus turned to the patriarch Polyuctus, who suggested re-proclaiming the empress and her two sons as the rightful rulers to ensure the public were with them. Then they turned to the issue of what to do with Nicephorus. 
the domestic had just achieved a stunning victory and would clearly expect a second triumph. To deny it to him might provoke the very rebellion which was now the regime's greatest fear. The Focus family had been conspicuously loyal to the Macedonians so far, so they cautiously invited Nicephorus to bring his trophies to the capital. He arrived in April, and this time was allowed to claim all of the glory for his achievements. He even brought out some of the treasures from Crete to show off again. Nicephorus was very proud of his accomplishments, and given his genuine religious faith, he gave pride of place to relics of John the Baptist, which he'd retrieved from Aleppo. There wasn't much the Regency Council could do to stop him at this point. They didn't want to anger him in any way, but this triumph turned into a political advertisement for Nicephorus's imperial credentials. Remember that generals were almost never allowed this kind of honour in Byzantium. It was always reserved for emperors and their families. Most regimes were too insecure or too shrewd to let it happen. Remember that when John Corcuas captured the Mandilion, he was not invited to lead the procession at Constantinople. It was the imperial family who took the icon around the city. But now, Nicephorus received adulation from all quarters. The people of the capital chanted Victor at him, which was kind of a pun on his name, and Nikiforos in Greek means bringer of victory, hence the sports brand of our own day. The populace were in no doubt who had brought victory over the Saracens. Naturally, relations between the council and Nicephorus were tense. However, everyone behaved well, and a deal was struck. The general would be reappointed domestic of the East if he signed a document promising to honour the rights of young Basil and Constantine, which he did. Nicephorus rode back to Cappadocia, where troops were gathering in anticipation of another campaign. But on the 2nd of July, they instead hailed him emperor, after prompting from their senior officers, chief amongst them, John Zimiskis. The histories are of little help in working out when Nicephorus changed his mind, or who was the prime mover behind his decision. We are left to assume that the domestic himself simply felt that he would make a better regent than anyone in the palace. We don't need to look beyond the opening episodes of this century to see ample examples of powerful men who couldn't resist angling for more power. Constantine Ducas, Romanus Lecapinos, and of course Nicephorus's own uncle, Leo. Most likely, if Nicephorus had any misgivings about the plan, then his subordinates all told him, No, go for it. You'd make a great emperor. And I would make a great new stratikos of wherever. 
The failure of Nicephorus's uncle in a similar situation must have weighed on his mind, but he now controlled the whole of the army. Remember that his brother Leo was domestic of the West, and he'd just celebrated two triumphs. Surely the people of Constantinople would be more favorably disposed to him than they had been for almost anyone else. Nicephorus sent men ahead to secure the harbors and camps on the Asian side of the Bosphorus before his own letter, declaring himself emperor, reached the capital. In it, he politely asked Bringus, Polyuctus, and the rest of the assembled notables of the capital to accept him as co-emperor. He promised, like Romanus Lecapinos before him, to protect the rights of his two infant colleagues, thus upholding the document he'd signed in front of them. He then promoted John Zimiskis to be the new domestic of the East, and tasked him with guarding the frontiers while he marched for the capital. Understandably, the Regency Council did not acquiesce to this polite request. Not only did they want to protect their own power, but the natural fear was that Phocus might extinguish the Macedonian line and found his own. Bringus put the city on lockdown and proclaimed Nicephorus a public enemy. This was a particularly dangerous moment for the rest of the Phocus clan who were resident in the city. The octogenarian Bardus Phocus was still there, and had to hobble to the Hagia Sophia to ask for sanctuary. While Leo Phocus disguised himself as a workman to avoid imperial agents, he then slipped through a drainage pipe out of the walls, commandeered a boat, and sailed across the Bosphorus to join his brother. Bringus, meanwhile, contacted Marianos Agiros, one of the few generals in the capital who was not affiliated with the Focats. He brought some European troops into the city and was tasked with preventing Nicephorus from crossing the sea. Though Bringus was a capable administrator, he had no public profile. He was no orator and didn't really have the tools to persuade the public to turn against the usurper. On the contrary, crowds gathered outside the Hagia Sophia to defend poor old Bardus. Men from the palace came to take him into custody, and they were roughed up and ejected. On the morning of the 9th of August, Bringus was forced to come in person to try and speak to the patriarch, who could do little else but give Bardus the protection he'd asked for. The crowds allowed the eunuch to speak, but Bringus ended up threatening them to try and get them to move. When he closed all the bread stalls outside the church, things turned ugly. Bringus returned with armed men, including apparently Arab prisoners who he'd press-ganged into service. Despite many being unarmed, the people responded in numbers and drove them off. Then, their blood up, they broke into the mansions of Bringus's fellow ministers and began looting. Crowds were hailing Nicephorus as emperor as they ran through the streets. 
Into this unfolding chaos stepped Basil Le Capinos. The eunuch had been out of favour since Constantine VII had died, but not in disgrace. He still had influence and plenty of money. Sensing an opportunity, he'd spent the previous few days recruiting, adding hastily armed men to his existing retainers. He now appeared alongside the crowds and aided them in penetrating and destroying Bringus's own home. He then led his men down to the docks, and greasing palms as he went, made sure that the navy would follow his orders. This was crucial. It had been the Imperial fleet who decided things for Romanus half a century earlier. Now, thanks to Basil's web of patronage, they went over to Nicephorus. Bringus, realising that his time was up, fled himself for the great church, begging for sanctuary. Basil sailed across the Bosphorus with the imperial yacht and offered it to Nicephorus. Leo Phocas was sent ahead to secure the city and prepare for his brother's entrance. On the 16th of August, Nicephorus Phocas crossed the waters, but he decided to land outside the walls and headed for the palace of the Hebdomon. There he changed into ceremonial attire, put on a golden breastplate and mounted a white charger. Draped in purple, he now entered the Golden Gate. He could thus make a triumphal entrance into the city and be greeted by cheering crowds. It was, by now, a familiar sight. The people escorted him to the Hagia Sophia. He stepped inside and was crowned co-emperor by the patriarch in the presence of the two tiny princes. Nicephorus had given assurances that they would not be harmed, and they weren't. The general, who had done so much to secure the Macedonian dynasty's position, now became a part of it. So far, the career of Nicephorus Phocas had itself been like a triumphal procession. Steady progress past one amazing sight after another on its way to the palace. However, the general was just that, a general. He was not a politician, and though his armies would carry all before them over the next few years, he was about to find out what life at the top of the imperial administration was really like. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 